Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Joe Janicek to discuss the Plastic People of the Universe, the band that helped bring down communism in Czechoslovakia. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight we're joined by Joe Janicek, author of A Consumer Guide to the Plastic People of the Universe. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, and so a lot of our listeners are not going to have any idea who the Plastic People of the Universe were and are, but they're one of the most historically significant musical acts we're ever going to talk about this show. Tell us why they matter so much. Well, historically, they're important because you always talk about revolutionary bands. This was a band who actually did, uh, you know, cause a revolution. They were uh, indirectly responsible for the Velvet Revolution that occurred in Czechoslovakia in 1989 when the, uh, the Czechs um, had a peaceful revolution and got rid of their Soviet uh, leaders, uh, rulers, I should say. But um, they were arrested in 1976 for playing music that the communist regime didn't approve of. And uh, as a result of that, the, um, uh, they were thrown in jail and a, a movement began supporting them. And that movement uh, morphed into the, uh, the, the generation of something called Charter 77, which was a human rights manifesto. And uh, from Charter 77, uh, that uh, in, in time became uh, the uh, the genesis for the Velvet Revolution. So ultimately, they were responsible for uh, you know changing the history of their country. Yeah, and and they um, I, I don't know that they inspired Václav Havel, but they they were 
part of that process resulted in Václav Havel becoming the first democratically elected president of Czechoslovakia in that Velvet Revolution. And then musically, I think they kind of negotiated a peace treaty between Frank Zappa and Lou Reed because their biggest influences were the Velvet Underground and Frank Zappa, who had hated each other <laughs> throughout the 60s and 70s. And then suddenly around this time, they start saying nice things. Do you have any insight on that? Well, that's a, that's a great point. I never thought about it as a peace treaty, but you're right. I mean, Zappa and Reed were two very different uh, musical uh, identities, and uh, these were the two figures that the plastic people chose uh, as their uh, their main influences musically, and uh, they mixed it in with uh, free jazz, uh, psychedelia, and uh, European classical music, and uh, they came up with a, a wildly original sound and. Uh, if you know, once you hear that band, the classic people of the universe, you you never heard anything like it because it's a truly original sound, a really cool sound. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, and I've really enjoyed um, the book as a roadmap to their discography. And tell us about their discography and why it's so complicated and tricky, because they couldn't record in their heyday in a normal way. Yes, um, you know they they hung out with a very artistic um, community. So they did have all people, you know, with them um, making uh, making movies of uh, films of their performances and uh, recording them. And uh, but, you know, due to the situation in Czechoslovakia, their music had to be passed around underground, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, they called it mag- dot, um recordings, uh, you know, secret underground unauthorized un- uh, recordings. And um, the lyrics were passed around through some of that magazines. So they couldn't release official albums. And, um, you know, some, their first album, quote unquote album that came out, uh, Egon Bondi's happy hearts club band was created because tapes that they had made secretly, uh, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia in the early seventies were smuggled out of the country and, uh, and, um, released, uh, in Europe by, uh, expatriates, uh, who were living there at the time. So, um, you know, in, even throughout the eighties, they recorded other albums secretly. Um, but they didn't see the light of day until years later. And, um, even the live stuff that they recorded, a lot, a lot of it was recorded and thankfully it was, um, you know, it, it survived, but, uh, audio, uh, a lot of, um, pictures and especially the movies that were made of their performances, were uh, unfortunately confiscated by the regime in in the in the late seventies. And you got a couple of great quotes, and I probably should have started with this. You describe them as dissidents against their will, and then you say that while the story of the plastic people of the universe is clearly a tale of artistic perseverance and ultimately triumph, it's also a lesson on the futility of trying to remain apolitical in a politicized state. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people, I know I was first introduced to them as this revolutionary heroic Czech band in the late 80s. I think Robert Christgau's Village Voice uh, called an album by a successor band, not the PPU, but um, Polnuk. Is that the right way to say the uh, next Polnuk. Yeah, um, they're live at, at uh, Public School 221, I want to say, you know, album of the year in 1989. And that definitely got my attention, and a lot of other people's attention. But sure. they weren't trying to do that. Right. Um, the, the quote, uh, Dissidents Against Our Will, was that was um, 
said by their the leader of the band, the uh, the person who formed the band as a 17 year old, Milan Falafsa, and um, you know he he was just a, a European Eastern European teenager who wanted to rock and roll. He got uh, turned on by Beatlemania like like the rest of uh, Europe, and um, he wanted to form a band and become famous. And uh, unfortunately, you know the the, uh, the times that he was living in. The um, the regime, you know, they they wanted to dictate what type of music was being made, and uh, he couldn't, you know, do what he wanted to do, which was play his own original music. And um, you know, throughout for twenty years, uh, he fought the regime, um, and you know, they they played their own music. Uh, they they hooked up with the uh, artistic director Ivan Giro, and he was very also uh, instrumental in. Uh, convincing the plastic people that what they were doing was important. You know, they were fighting the regime and uh, doing their own thing. And, um, but, you know, but they, they fought the regime and they played their own music, uh, you know, until the uh, practically the end of the, uh, right before the Velvet Revolution, when they broke up, uh, plastic people broke up in 1988 because they, uh, they were made, they were given basically an ultimatum by the uh, regime that, you know, in the late 80s, when the, the restrictions started to loosen and rock bands were able to perform in public again, uh, the plastic people were different from all the other bands because they had such a reputation at that time that the regime said, you, you know, you can get back on stage too, but you have to change your name. You know, the plastic people of the universe is such a infamous name now that we, you know, we can't allow you to win. We have to you know, say that, well, you, you can change your name and we'll, we'll let you play. And Halasa was willing to do that because he just wanted to get on stage and rock and roll again. But other members of the band said, no, we don't want to give up the name. And, and that caused the uh, the band to break up in 88. And then at that point, uh, Halasa formed Fulmots uh, with some plastic people, veterans and some, uh, some newer members. And, um, but yeah, they, they never meant to be a, a political force. They always were, you know, they just wanted to play music, and uh, the regime uh, forced them to become political against their will. So let's hear our first track. This is The Plastic People of the Universe from 1974. The title translates to It's Raining, It's Raining. I believe in Czech it's Percy. Is that close? Uh, Percy, yep. <laughs> All right. And, and let's hear it, and then you can tell us about it when I come back. the plastic people of the universe with their song it's raining it's raining from 1974 tell us about that one why did you pick it and what's it represent in their history well i just think it's uh, one of their most accessible songs it's got a, a good uh, chugging rhythm like a jam song and uh, you know any any song you you listen to for them you know they have such a wide variety of styles but i like that one uh, you know, that little snippet there has some good uh, psychedelic guitar in it. And um, it, it's, it's a nice song to first uh, the beginning of it with the, the theremin introduction, 
um, it's, it's, it gives you a taste of the band, how, how their sound is. Cool. Yeah, I was particularly surprised and impressed that they they uh, had gotten their hands on a theremin, um, and it fits in perfectly with, like you say, their unique mix. And the, the one ingredient that that I heard that you didn't mention, you mentioned Czech or European classical music, but you didn't mention Czech folk music per se. But I hear a lot of the same stuff I hear in Dvorak. You know, that conscious um, referencing of, the, of that unique Central European uh, folk music. But let's talk about. Um, yeah. Milan Halsa a little bit and his background because the musical background in the '60s, they called it big bit music. Is that is that the right way to say it? That's right. Yes. Uh, you know, in in the, we would call it big the big beat, but it was basically uh, you know European, uh, rather American and uh, you know American and uh, English you know pop hits from the U.S. and the U.K. and um, you know the Czechs called it big beat. Yep. And so, and he played in a in a band that that the called the Glowworms that did Beatles songs, and then he's in a band called the Undertakers that did Stone songs, R and B stuff. Could have could have been any kid in England or Holland uh, or Spain. You know, you read so many of these biographies, and so many band, musicians have the same background. But he kind of parts ways with the Beatles around the time of Sgt. Pepper. I was frustrated with Jimi Hendrix as well because of the the technical challenges. And I kind of spoil in your answer, but. What was it that the Velvet Underground meant so much to, to Milan? Well, he was not a trained musician. He uh, he got into rock and roll just because, you know, his older brother was a, a rock and roll fan. Uh, I think it was uh, he turned him on to Bill Haley when he was young. And then when Beatlemania started, he obviously fell for the Beatles and the Stones soon after that. But um, he was not a trained musician and he wasn't uh, accomplished as a guitar player. He wanted to be a guitar player. Uh, he couldn't uh, manage that, so he ended up uh, removing a couple strings from a guitar and uh, turning it into a bass, and he just started uh, playing the bass. And then when he heard a friend uh, was able to get a hold of a um, copy of the Velvet Underground and Nico album, the first album by the Velvets, and he heard that, and he, that was a life-changing uh, experience for him. He heard, uh, you know, especially the song, I'm Waiting for My Man, with that, uh, you know, hammering, blunt hammering rhythm and uh, he heard that he said oh you know that's that's the kind of music i like it's very simple very primitive and uh and he said oh i can do that and i can play that and uh that music really affected him and uh, that was what he wanted to do yeah and it's a classic illustration of the old maxim and i, I should know but can't remember who the rock critic was that said you know only twenty thousand people bought the velvet underground right. records when they were around, but yeah. every one of those people formed a band and uh, the, the, the classic example of that. Um, and then yeah. the, the Frank Zappa connection, can you explain a little bit about what Zappa meant in Czechoslovakia in this time period and why he became such an icon? Well, I guess the uh, Zappa and the mothers, those early albums also, you know, small amounts of copies, uh, somehow made the way over to the uh, the underground community in in uh, Czechoslovakia and they had a huge influence they were just uh, in all of eastern europe zappa was considered one of the gods of the underground just because they identified with his uh, his independent spirit you know zappa you uh, you know with the long hair and uh, you know the crazy music <laughs> Uh, you know, they even if they didn't understand the lyrics, they they could tell that he was doing what he wanted, and 
you know, they, they admired the, the freedom that, that he was uh, expressing in his music. And, um, you know, that, that really uh, had a big effect on the, uh, you know, people behind the Iron Curtain because, uh, you know, they, they identified with that and they, uh, they respected that. And tell us a little bit about the political context of the Prague Spring. Like some of our listeners are not going to know what that was. Tell us about 1968 in Czechoslovakia, 67, 68, and what the Prague Spring was and what that meant for rock and roll musicians and fans at the time. Well, in, in the history of Czechoslovakia, it was, it was a time, you know, the, the couple of years leading up to 1968 was when the restrictions, um, you know, they were... Uh, a control, you know, they were controlled by the Soviet communists, but uh, they had um, a, uh, a communist uh, leader there who was uh, appointed, you know, by Brezhnev, and um, this was um, Alexander Dubček, and you know, he he wanted to change the uh, policies. He called it uh, socialism with a human face, and he started to loosen the restrictions. He uh, stopped with the censorship and he allowed people to travel. And, uh, you know, when he did that, more, more uh, rock and roll music entered the country. But it just became a, a period of time when um, there was a lot of freedom in the country and they hadn't had that in a while. And uh, it was a very uh, artistic time. You know, there was a lot of plays and uh, uh, movies were made. And um, it was a great, it was a very, uh, you know, art, all the arts flourished in in the spring of 1968. And um, meanwhile, you know, back in in Russia, Brezhnev saw what was happening and he said, oh, but, you know, they've gone too far and he had to stop it. And uh, and they uh, that that uh, initiated the Warsaw Pact invasion uh, when, uh, you know, they sent in the troops to uh, to quell the Prague Spring. Yeah. One one event that I wasn't aware of that you point out, you know, this overnight, like a switch flipping was that. On August 19th, 1968, the Moody Blues, England's own Moody Blues, who were, you know, at the early beginnings of their peak of their fame and career, that they lip synced their hit Nights in White Satin on the Charles Bridge for European TV yeah. the, the day before the invasion. Um, just, you know, mind blowing what a whipsaw that must have been for everyone in Prague and, and all I, of Czechoslovakia. Yes, I, you know, that something I just learned in researching the book, but you can actually find video of, uh, of the booty blues on the bridge doing that, the song, uh, on YouTube. And, uh, and then, you know, it's amazing when you think the very next day there were bridges, there were tanks, you know, uh, in that spot. So. Yeah, pretty crazy. And another thing that, that I found very interesting and informative to me about learning about uh, the plastic people and the, and the Czech rock scene in the sixties was, their perspective on our on you know american and english music like growing up you know you were either a velvet underground fan or a frank zappa fan at least that was my experience in the 70s and 80s it was very hard even though you know a lot of the velvet fans like captain beefheart and some of the zappa fans like captain beefheart they you know they were seen as these very separate things but one of the bands that was big in the Prague Spring, and this is another thing I didn't understand. I had thought the Plastic People were the big band of the Prague Spring, but they were actually not even formed yet. Um, the, the, the big group was the Primitives Group that you call Prague's first psychedelic outfit. And they did covers yeah. by um, Zappa's Mother of Inventions, the Pretty Things, who are the big – they weren't even big, but they, they were – 
they were big in England in like 64, 65. They were the second to the Stones in the R&B revolution, but then they became a pioneering psychedelic outfit, although not commercially successful. But they're also doing the Fugs, who are totally underground, you know, East Village, um, Greenwich Village, dirty joke band, basically. And the Doors, who are seen as totally, you know, commercial pop uh, here in America, um, you know, but... From that distance, they all were wild, free, crazy rock and roll. But let's hear our next song. This is a, a, a song from 1984, again, by the people of the universe. It translates to metastasis, metastasis, which is, you know, what cancer does when it grows. Let's hear it and then let you tell us about it. the plastic people of the universe from 1984 their song metastas an english word i can't pronounce <laughs> but the, the czech word is metastasize um which means uncontrollable cancerous growth why'd you pick that one and what's it represent in their discography well that song um actually uh ended up turning into another song on um uh, their beef slaughter album <clears throat> but the original, the backing track, which is, uh, I think, it, I think they they say metastasis, or I don't know if it's metastasized, but um, however they, however it translates from metastase, which is the Czech, but um, they, uh, that's actually the, like the demo version of the song that appeared later on on Beef Slaughter. I, I just like the the music. Um, it's got some great drumming, and uh, it goes on for I think I think it's a seven minute track. Um, you know, we just heard the first 15 seconds, but it builds and builds and builds and uh, the drumming is great. It's got some horns and then there's a, a great saxophone solo at the end. So it, it just, it's just a nice song. And uh, it, uh, I, I always like that one. Cool. And so the, the Soviet invasion happens, puts a brutal end to the Prague spring. And this is when plastic people of the universe forms. Tell us about, um, uh, the the original formation of the band, what Milan was going for, what kind of songs they were playing, and what kind of lineup they had. Well, he formed it just a few weeks after the, uh, you know, the Warsaw Pact invasion. And again, he was 17 years old at the time. He he got a a schoolmate of his to play guitar. He played the bass. Uh, they got a, a young drummer uh, to join them, and um, and then a lead singer. And it was just the four of them. They got a, uh, a gig playing at a, a local bar um, for a few months. Uh, and um, they they got discovered, actually, by um, uh, it, they, what they did is they oh, – I'm sorry. I screwed that up. I was just going to say um, they ended up uh, com- competing in something called the Beat Salon. And that was like a uh, battle of the bands. And they, they didn't win, but they – they got some attention by a, uh, a manager, and this was at the time when the the state they controlled, you know, the the music and the licenses and all the managers. So, um, you know, he was able to get them some good instruments and uh, get them get them some bookings. 
But, um, you know, they were just a young band and uh, the Primitives, as you said, they were the first psychedelic band in uh, in Prague. And uh, the Plastic People, they they got their name just because they liked that name. They took it from a Zappa song, uh, The Mother's Invention, Plastic People. And um, they were doing a mix. At that point, they were kind of doing a mix of some uh, songs that they sung in Czech as well as, as, well as a lot of covers. And um, then what happened was the uh, the manager of the uh, Primitives, Yvonne Giraud, he was the artistic director as well. Uh, he knew that the Primitives were going to break up. So when they broke up, he uh, he said to the classic people, I'll, I'll be your artistic director. And he brought with him the guitarist from the Primitives uh, to join the classic people. This was uh, Josef Janicek. And... Uh, and from from then on, the plastic people had uh, had a good manager, and they they did have uh, Giro, who was uh, he was really a mastermind behind you know the, uh, the you know the the show that they put on. He had a direction artistic direction team that involved him, uh, his sister, his wife, and his sister's husband. And uh, between the four of them, they were you know they were um, all arts art uh, art school graduates, and they. Uh, you know the the sister was a great graphic designer. A post she made the poster for the band, and uh, his friend was a photographer, and his wife was a, uh, a lyricist. But he he considered him like his. He was uh, Andy Warhol. You know, in his mind, he loved Warhol, and he wanted to create his own version of the uh, Warhol's exploding plastic inevitable, and um, he used the plastic people to, for that uh, for that purpose. <laughs> And and another thing that was interesting was that you know the invasion happens in the fall of '68, but the crackdown on the arts doesn't happen until the following year in April of 1969, and then it's not until May 1970 that the plastic that bands are forced to audition to keep their licenses and equipment. How did the the PPU react to this this mandate? Well, that's right. When, you know, when the, um, the, the invasion came and then the first thing that, you know, the, uh, the regime did is they, you know, reinstated censorship and they took control of the radios and, uh, you know, so they, they had some major things to address before they started to worry about the young people and, and the rock and roll. But after a couple of years, uh, they, they got around to that and they turned their attention onto the, uh, you know, the hippies and basically, uh, what they did is they said, we're going to have to have requalification uh, exams, they called them. And uh, that meant that all the bands that had licenses uh, or even bands that didn't have licenses were going to have to reapply if they wanted to get a professional license and play. And, um, you know, you had to play uh, songs that were sung in Czech. You couldn't sing in, in English language. You couldn't play anything that was, you know, hard rock or anything psychedelic anything like that, uh, you know, you had to play, uh, you know, the, the, the party uh, pablum, as they said, you know, you had to play what they wanted to hear and uh, say what they wanted you to say. And the plastic people, uh, you know, they, they tried to conform. They, they tucked their, their long hair, you know, underneath their, uh, their shirts, uh, you know, behind their collars, and they got up on stage. But once they started playing music, the, the regime said, oh, no, these guys... <laughs> They uh, that they're not going to conform. So they realized that very soon that, you know, they were going to be uh, a problem because they, you know, they had a, another thought. They had all the young people were following them at that point by the early 70s. 
they started to, you know, grow a following other bands and, uh, and the regime realized that these guys were, were the leaders, uh, especially Giro. He was considered the leader of the Czech underground and, uh, they, they, the regime knew they had to squash them. So, and, and so, and that had very real consequences. They lost their manager and, and all their equipment as well. So, and some of their members quit. How did they reconstitute? And what was the next phase of life for the PPU? Well, this was right in the early 70s. They, they lost their, their um, state-owned instruments and their licenses. Uh, a couple of them you know, quit the band at that point. Um, Halasa and um, I believe the, uh, um, who was it? Oh, Janicek. They uh, they joined Ivan Giro. They went to his hometown with him, and they ended up working uh, working for a summer, I guess it was, as lumberjacks just to earn some money. And uh, Janicek was also a very accomplished uh, mechanic and electrician, so uh, he was able to uh, you know uh, rig up some gear for them. And eventually, they bought some secondhand instruments and they started playing again. Uh, then they went back to Prague and. Um, uh, two new members joined the band. They had a, uh, a, vi- a violinist, violinist named Yuri Kabesh, uh, and uh, the other person who joined the time at that time was a very interesting person, uh, Paul Wilson. He was actually a Canadian exchange student who traveled to Czechoslovakia in 1967, and he only planned to stay a year, but he ended up uh, liking it. He stuck around. But he uh, experienced the Prague Spring, and then he also experienced, you know, what the Russians called, uh, what the communists called normalization. The normalization was, you know, bringing it back to uh, how the society was uh, back in the, you know, the Stalin days, Joseph Stalin. And, um, but Wilson was working as an English teacher, and Ivan Giraud, the band's manager, recruited Wilson to teach the plastic people how to sing Velvet Underground songs and Fug songs in English. And, um, you know, Wilson became the lead singer at that time. And the the rest of the band, they were just really uh, singing phonetically. You know, they didn't really know what they were singing, but they were singing, you know, the words in English, uh, the backing backing vocals. Uh, But uh, Wilson, uh, you know, became the uh, the lead singer of the Plastic People for a couple of years. And um, until such time in uh, 1973, when uh, Vratislav Robinec, the uh, free jazz saxophonist, he joined the band. And he joined And the let's band. take a quick break before we get into that next phase. And let's hear from our sponsor and celebrate a little bit of capitalism. And so you just introduced the next major character in the story, Vratislav Robinec. Who was he? What did he bring to the band? And what did he make them change? Well, Vratislav Robinec... Uh, is a free jazz saxophonist. He uh, began playing, uh, he was a half a generation older than the rest of the plastic people. And he started uh, his career, he played in the traditional jazz bands, but then he started playing free jazz and he joined the band in 73, uh, but he gave the band two conditions. He said, I'll join the band, but uh, we have to start playing all original music, no more covers. Uh, and we also have to start singing all of our songs in Czech. So those were his two conditions, and uh, Giro and the band uh, agreed. And um, he he totally changed the sound of the band. You know, he uh, 
um, gave them a very original sound with the saxophone and as well as, you know, all the original music and the, um, the singing in Czech. Um, and then the other thing that happened at that same time was the band, um, discovered, uh, the poems of Egon Bondi. Uh, Bondi was a, uh, a famous dissident poet and philosopher and author, uh, from the fifties. So he was a generation older than the classic people. Uh, he was the first one in Czechoslovakia to, uh, create a Samizdat magazine, underground magazine in 1950. And um, he he actually, it was a funny story how he met the band. Uh, Yvon Giraud, the manager, he was seeing a psychiatrist and, and Bondi was seeing the psychiatrist too. And uh, Bondi was seeing the psychiatrist under his real name. Um, and uh, I think it was Zydenek Pfizer. But uh, when uh, Giraud realized that Pfizer was actually the, the infamous Egon Bondi, uh, he met met him and you know told them about the Plastic People. Bondi came to a Plastic People concert. He loved the music, but he suggested to the band, I think they, the audience would like my words better, and uh, and the band agreed. They started to use uh, his uh, his poems as the lyrics uh, for for their new songs. And Halasa was the one who composed all of the music uh, for the band. And uh, he wrote about it later. He said, you know. I would just read a, bo- a Bondi poem, and based on how it made me feel, that's how I would uh, write the music ac- accordingly. And uh, you know, it was a totally original, uh, you know, sound that they came up with to ac- uh, accommodate, uh, accompany uh, Bondi's uh, words. And adding those two elements to the band, I mean, it's like they they you know dramatically increase their cultural power in a way with that, but that immediately brings down the hammer from the authorities. Tell us about some of the legal problems um, and harassment that they faced from the secret police in, in this period. Well, yes, that's true. I mean, Bondi, he, he'd been on the, you know, the regime's, uh, you know, list of uh, people they got to watch out for, for, for a long time. And, uh, you know, when they found out that he was, you know, now hanging out with the plastic people, uh, it, it did give, uh, you know, more uh, credence to the plastic people and made them uh, even more dangerous in the, in the eyes of the regime. But um, the, uh, the band, you know, they were forced underground in, in uh, like 73 or so, and they, they couldn't uh, play any gigs anywhere without, uh, you know, the gig being um, raided or, uh, you know, by, uh, by the police or stopped before they started. And um, the big event that happened then was, um, you know, sometimes the way that the band would get around it is that the Czech law allowed bands to, or allowed couples rather, to pick their own music for weddings. So when they were going to get married, you know, they could pick their own band. And that was one, one way the plastic people were actually able to play uh, legally. And uh, a lot of people in the plastic people circle, all their friends, you know, they'd get married two or three times <laughs> just so they would have an excuse to have a, a concert. But, um, what happened was it was Yvonne Giraud's wedding, uh, his celebration, where what they he started to call uh, arranged concerts, and he would call them festivals of the second culture. So that's that's what he his Giraud himself wrote a very famous manifesto, uh, you know, identifying what he called the second culture, which was a separate culture from the uh, the culture of the regime, uh, you know, independent of that, and. Um, 
he created, uh, you know, his his wedding uh, celebration. He designated that as the second fol- second festival of the second culture, and um, at that time, you know, they they had a great. It was recorded. The audio was recorded. Uh, the video was ended up being confiscated. But um, following that concert uh, in 1976, the regime rounded up uh, all the plastic people, other musicians, a total of 20, 22 people in the underground were rounded up and thrown in jail. Uh, many of them were, were released after you know a few months, but some of them did uh, serious jail time. And uh, this was the event that uh, ended up gaining, you know, gaining a lot of attention for the plastic people. Uh, and that's when um, Václav Havel, the dissident playwright, uh, other uh, intellectual leaders of the dissident community uh, in Czechoslovakia, you know, they, they rallied around the plastic people. They, uh, you know, they couldn't believe that people would get thrown in jail just for playing music. And, uh, you know, Havel uh, with his uh, international uh, um, ties to, you know, people around the world, he was able to get, uh, garner a lot of, uh, attention to the classic people. And, you know, that was 1977 or so they became somewhat of a cause celebre, um, their situation. And let's go ahead and hear our next track before the story continues. And this is Lottie Holke, which translates to young girls from 1985. And that was the Plastic People of the Universe doing Mladi Holki, which translates to Young Girls from 1985. Why did you pick that track? Uh, again, it's just, uh, you know, they have so much great music. It's, it's hard to pick something that, uh, that's not representative of, you know, how, how original they sound. But uh, I like that one because it's got a great uh, trombone solo and, uh, and a violin solo. Um, that was, comes from their last album, their last illegal period album, I should say. From, uh, it was recorded in 1984-85, uh, released only in the, Le- in the Netherlands by, in 1987 uh, by uh, uh, Henry Cow's drummer, uh, Chris Cutler. He was a big fan of the band, and he uh, formed a, a record label, Fredonia, uh, for the sole purpose of releasing that album uh, to help them out. Um, but uh, a great album, Midnight Mouse, one of my favorites, and... Uh, they introduced a couple new instruments on that album, um, notably the, uh, the trombone. And let's backtrack a little bit and tell us about the first album by the Plastic People of the Universe that you ever came across. Uh, uh, tell us your personal discovery of it, and then tell us how the album was made. Well, the first album um, was called Egon Bondi's Happy Hearts Club Band, and it was... Uh, released in 1978 in England and France only, and the story of how it got released is incredible. It's uh, it was uh, the music was actually recorded in 73, 74. Um, in it was recorded in a, in a castle 
where, where one of the friends of the plastic people, he was the caretaker of the castle, and they recorded the tapes. Uh, the tapes got smuggled out of the country uh, in the mid-'70s, and they made their way into the hands of uh, a man named Ivan Hartel. He was a Czech expat living in London, and after the 1976 arrests, um, soon after that, uh, the Canadian, Paul Wilson, was expelled from the country for basically uh, associating with the plastic people. Uh, Wilson traveled to London and he hooked up with Ivan Hartel. Uh, and those two men, those two men produced and released the, uh, the Egon Bondi album. And they did it without the band's knowledge. The, the band wasn't even aware of it. But um, they, uh, they made the record. I think it was pressed in Ireland and uh, printed in France. And, you know, they had to do, do it step by step. Um, and, uh, but they got the album out and uh, small copy amounts of copies made the way over to the U S and, uh, rock critic, uh, Robert Christgau heard it. He reviewed it, uh, in 78, 79 as an import. And, uh, I saw that review. I said, Oh, this sounds interesting. And, you know, I, I looked around for the album for years and I couldn't find it. Um, and then finally, one uh, one year, I was down in, in New Orleans in a rest- record store, and I looked up on the wall, and there it was. And uh, I I bought it, played it right away, and uh, you know the music just totally uh, knocked me out. Um, what was interesting too about this record is it was a gatefold, and in uh, one pocket of the gatefold was a, a big big booklet called the Merry Ghetto which not only did have pictures of the band and um, it had quotes and essays by Hobble, by Yvonne Giroux, uh, by Paul Wilson and Ivan Hartel. Uh, you know, it had the, the history of the plastic people and the story of the whole Czech underground. So, you know, you, you're listening to music and at the same time you can read the story. And it was just an incredible story. And uh, it, it, that was the thing that hooked me on the band. And I think it hooked most of the people you know, most of the Plastic People fans, I'm sure, you know, that's the first album that anyone heard. And one of the things that inspired me to write this book is that a lot of people who know about the Plastic People either know about them just because of, you know, their 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 backstory, you know, about the arrests and how they, you know, they helped uh, start the revolution, uh, or they just, or they know about the Plastic People through that one album, Egon Bondi. But there's, you know, what, amazed me you know i've always been a fan of their their music and i've known that they had a lot of music but i didn't know how much so once i really started digging deeper i was amazed at uh you know the the size of their discography and uh that you know there's so much more to to listen to even though you might know the egon bondi album uh, there's a lot more great music to hear yeah, and your book is an excellent guide to this stuff, and I've really enjoyed reading through it the last few months and, and tracking down as much of the stuff I can get my hands on, which in these days of the Internet is a lot easier than it used to be. And uh, I've checked sure. off all the, the A's and A-pluses so far um, and uh-huh. have really enjoyed that. But things continue to get worse for them. Tell us about Operation Sanitation and th- what the impact that had on the members of the band. Well, that was in um, the early 80s. Um, the regime, uh, you know, the secret police, they were called the uh, Stasny, Bestasny, I think, SDP, but the, uh, they were the secret police. They initiated a, a program called sanitation. And uh, what they meant was they wanted to clean, clean the country of all the, all the dissidents, all the, uh, all the garbage. And um, 
you know, the plastic people and uh, Havel and uh, a lot of, you know, philosophers and poets and artists, they, they were all on the regime's list. And um, Vladislav Robinich in particular was uh, singled out and he was, uh, you know, forced to, uh, he would get picked up all the time, get beaten, get interrogated. Uh, his, he had a young uh, family at that time and they were threatened. So it, it was 1981-82, uh, he decided he'd had enough and he emigrated to uh, Canada. Uh, and he lived there for the next 14 years. But before he was forced out, uh, he made one final collaboration, the Leading Horses album. Tell us about that album and, and what it represents in the evolution of their music. Yes, this was uh, now um, Robinesh. They stopped using Bondi uh, lyrics uh, for some time, and uh, Robinesh was supplying lyrics. Um, and he he was also a poet. He's still a writer, uh, you know, today. And um, Halafsa and Brabadech collaborated. Uh, Halafsa wrote the music, and Brabadech supplied the lyrics. And um, it's it's a it's a really great album. Um, it's a lot, a lot of dirges on it. It's one of their slower albums, but it, all the music is very compelling. And uh, um, it's almost like uh, they they added a small string section. They added more horns. So it's, it's really like chamber music uh, that rocks out. <laughs> and then um, after um, Vladislav was forced to immigrate, the band changes yet again. And this is when they together the the midnight mouse album and but they're struggling to play like in the in the 80s they're barely even able to play at all the wedding scam i guess is, is busted tell us about this period the sort of final period of the original ppu well they um after Brabadesh uh was forced to leave um they made two more albums uh, in the 80s as the plastic people uh, the first one was called beef slaughter uh, that one was recorded 83, 84, um, but it was never released at the time. It finally got its first release in 1992 uh, after the Velvet Revolution occurred. But uh, that was an album, that, a full full album that they made, and it was uh, passed around, you know, on underground circles on on tape. But it never came out. Great album. Um, and then uh, the final illegal period album was Midnight Mouse. And that was uh, recorded 85. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, the music was much different than it was during the Egon Bondi days. Um, you know, first of all, without Robinette, she didn't have the uh, free jazz saxophone. But Halas's compositions became more, uh, more uh, intricate, more complicated. And, um, you know, but they still rocked, but they just had a different sound. It was a fuller sound. And, um, you know, with all the diverse instruments, they added, as I said, uh, clarinets and trombones, and it really became more, more prog rock than it was, uh, you know, art rock at that point. Yeah, and this is the period where the, the Zappa influence, to me, to my ear anyway, is really coming through. And let's hear our final track. This I'm not even going to try to say this in Czech, but, but it translates us from corner to corner. And this is uh, from 1985, and it's on the Midnight Mass album.
And that was the Plastic People of the Universe, their track from corner to corner from 1985 on the Midnight Mouse album. Why'd you pick that one? I love that song. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very repetitive. And what's interesting about the the songs on that album, Midnight Mouse, is that that album was originally conceived by Vaslav Havel. Uh, it was supposed to be a collaboration between a famous Czech pop singer, Marta Kubisova, Um she was very uh, popular before the Prague, you know, before the invasion, the Warsaw Pact invasion, uh, and she was going to be the lead singer. But then the regime found out about it, and uh, they uh, they interrogated her, and she had to bow out. But um, all the poems, all the songs on that album were um, they're taken from lyrics of the poet of poets that Ho- uh, that Havel uh, admired. So he supplied the all the lyrics for that album. Yeah, and I mean, amazing cultural co- collaboration. And so now we're coming to the period, and you kind of talked about this earlier, where the Soviet, um, you know, Poland's already kind of had their revolutionary period. Gorbachev is in power, and things are just loosening up. And like you said, uh, this, ironically enough, is is breaks up the band because, um, you know, other people are allowed to play again, but the plastic people name is too much, so the band breaks up. Tell us about um, Lovsa's next band and and how they managed to cross the Atlantic and and play in America. Yes, so uh, in 1988, the Plastics broke up because they couldn't agree on whether to change their name or not. And Lovsa formed Pulmots. And uh, joining him in in that band was uh, Josef Janicek and Jiri Tabesh. Uh, They were two original Plastic People veterans. And then uh, also four younger members, including Halafsa's uh, uh, sister-in-law. Um, and uh, she was uh, an operatically trained singer. And she, if you hear her, she sounds very much like uh, Nico, you know, very icy, uh, cold sound, but uh, a great singer. And um, they, had an, they had amazing guitar players in Pullmots. Uh, they went through three guitar players in three years, but each one of them was fantastic. And um, they had a cello as well as a great drummer, but um, they were they were just a truly great band, Pullmots. And um, they ended up doing their first tour in the spring of uh, 1989 uh, in America, uh, uh, just by getting tourist visas. They were able to get tourist visas, and they uh, they they did a I think a seven city tour of the U.S. at that time. Um, and that, as you said, that's when uh, critic uh, Robert Christie heard the band. Uh, perform at uh, PS122 in New York City uh, on April 24th, and he um, he named that uh, a concert of that recording uh, his favorite recording of of the year, 1989. And um, uh, the rest is history. <laughs> to bail you out on that, and and so. Around this time, you know, the Czech Communist government falls. Uh, the Velvet Under uh, Velvet Revolution happens. Václav Havel is is elected democratically as the president. Um, what happens then uh, with the PPU and vis-a-vis Havel and and you know, did they live happily ever after? What did they reunion? What what happened? Well, after the Velvet Revolution, um, Ivan Giraud was released from prison. He had 
spent like eight years of the of the the two decades of Soviet normalization. Uh, he'd spent half of that time behind bars, but he became free. Uh, he got involved in the punk rock scene. Uh, Halafsa, uh, Pullmops broke up in 1993 for the first time. They ended up reuniting years later, but they broke up in 93 because uh, the singer got pregnant and she wanted to uh, uh, raise her family. And um, Halafsa ended up joining a band called Fiction, which was more of a, a pop rock, like a dream dream pop band, um, very different from Plastic People. But you know, he became a star for the first time in his career, which is something that he always wanted. Um, you know, he he had met Zappa and Reed, who had both traveled to Prague in uh, in 1990, and these are two of his heroes. So he, uh, you know, he had an incredible couple of years, and then then he became a pop star for a few years. Um, but at that point, everyone thought the Plastic People story uh, was over, uh, including including me, because I wrote an article about them in 1996 for uh, my friend's website, Perfect Sound Forever. And, um, you know, at that point, I thought the story was over. But then what happened was in 1997, uh, President Havel uh, asked the, uh, the band, he didn't really ask them, he kind of told them, you, you have to reunite to uh, to celebrate the 20th anniversary uh, of Charter 77, which they were responsible for, and um, which, you know, which was responsible for the Velvet Revolution. And the band got back together. Uh, Robinetch flew in from Canada, and they performed at the um, at the Prague Castle, you know, where the you know the communists had conspired against them just months earlier. Uh, the plastic people got on stage, and they uh, they played for Havel and his new cabinet. And uh, the band loved uh, loved it, you know, being back together. And uh, Robinetch ended up moving back to uh, Czechoslovakia. And the band uh, began to tour again, and they toured for a few years until uh, Halafsa uh, sadly died at the age of uh, 50, I believe, uh, in 2001. And um, after his death, uh, the band hired, uh, you know, they two two other members joined the band, and they continued on. And uh, incredibly, they they continued on until 2016, when they broke up, broke off into two separate factions. Um, Plastic People of the Universe, and then they had another band called PPU New Generation, and um, only recently have have they really stopped playing uh, completely. But um, you know, they they had a long career, fifty years. So, uh, yeah, incredible story. Uh, my guest has been Joe Yanisik. The book is a consumer guide to the Plastic People of the Universe. And Joe, I just want to thank you for putting this information together and getting this out there because this is a story. I would never. I mean, I'd heard you know details, but you really get in there and and you prioritize the art and and give us a great discography of the band and a great guide to actually listen to the music of this band that people have been hearing about for so long. They've been pretty impenetrable, but um, great stuff. And thanks again. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes director Jeff Kaufman to discuss his film Savoy King, Chick Webb and the Music That Changed America. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.